Hello, and welcome to PS Love, the show interviewing President Scholars at SMU alumni. Today joining me is Tyler Douglas Anderson. Tyler is a part of the 2014 Bachelor of President Scholars. He graduated with degrees in political science, public policy, economics, and that wasn't enough, so he added on business with a minor in mathematics. Uh, after SMU, he started working for Bank of America Securities, formerly Merrill Lynch, in their public finance investment banking group, where he works with public and not-for-profit entities to underwrite bonded debt, and we'll get into what that means. Uh, Tyler grew up in Ozark, Missouri, and currently lives in Dallas, although he'll likely be moving to another Texas city for medical school after this summer, another thing that we'll be talking about. Tyler keeps busy gardening. Uh, to the Stardew Valley soundtrack uh, in real life. He, he gardens in real life and then plays the Stardew Valley soundtrack in the background. Uh, he also enjoys hyper-milling his Tesla and hanging out with his girlfriend and fellow president scholar, Dami Salako, also the class of 2014. He's also one of my best friends. Tyler, hello. Hey, glad to be here. Thanks for doing this. I think it's wonderful. Oh, of course. Uh, thank you for the, the early uh, feedback on whether or not this was a good idea and uh, helping me out with episode number three. Sure. Ah. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, three is the best number, so I'm glad I could be number three. It's true. Uh, I'd love to get started by talking a little bit about who you were at SMU. So like, uh, what <laughs> you had you had so many different majors and minors. Uh, what's, what's up with that? <laughs> what uh, got you <laughs> sure. interested in, in all those different topics? Uh, at, at the time, if I was talking to that Tyler at SMU, what would he have said his interests were and like what he wanted to be when he grew up? And uh, who were you uh, at SMU? You know, it's it's a good question. Um, in terms of who I was, I think, you know, I started out at SMU probably very nerdy, you know, especially my first year. Uh, I remember wearing ties and sweaters or sweater vests to classes. For some reason, I picked up juggling. Uh, you may remember Roman. Do you remember Roman Stalyarov by chance? Oh, of course. Yeah. Is yeah, it so uh, he and I, MIT, I think? Yeah, I think he is now. I think he's doing um, maybe a PhD. Or, I have not spoken to him in years, but we were we were good friends our first year, well, through all of college. Oh, he might be interviewing him before year. then. Oh, do it. Yeah. Bother him. Then maybe I'll get connected back with him. I mean, I haven't spoken <laughs> with him in five or six years, unfortunately. But um, but for whatever reason, we thought it would be hilarious to learn how to juggle. So, or fun, maybe. And he tried to make like an SMU club called, <laughs> he called it Mustang Balls. And we had like <laughs> three people learning how to juggle together. <laughs> and so I would walk around campus like, you know, wearing sweaters. And it's like, October, so it's not even cold, you know, in Dallas. I'd be wearing sweaters and ties. I'd be juggling and whistling. That was that was Tyler circa 2010, 2011, for whatever reason. I love it. So there's the context. In terms of, you know, you mentioned the area, my areas of study, my majors and my minor and everything. And, you know, I think for me at the time, I just was really interested in kind of history and political science and what was going on. I, I also thought for some reason at the time, I'm not currently consider this about myself, but I thought I was like a really, you know, solid Republican or something. Ronald Reagan was like the man, right? <laughs> so I don't know why, but it, things change. Um, and so that's why I studied political science, public policy. Economics was just something that fascinated me. And there, there wasn't really any intention with, and this is my failure, but it's also part of being 18. There wasn't really any intention with what those things would become in terms of a career or uh, some greater purpose or whatever it might be. They were just areas that I was interested in. And I don't think, you know, I don't think I would change that for the life of me because it was fun. I enjoyed all the classes, uh, 
you know, all my good friends from undergrad were basically in the same classes because we'd, you know, take them together and we'd study together and do all that stuff. So, but hopefully that, that kind of answers, answers your question some. I love, Did I miss something? I love Mustang balls. <laughs> I know. That was that was all, all his idea. I don't know how he thought it was so funny. He made flyers <laughs> of like a must of like a pony juggling and it said oh Mustang gosh. balls at join now. And they were like eight and a half by eleven just sheets of paper. He'd print it off in like black and white because he didn't have like color ink or something like that. And he just posted them, like stuck them up randomly all over campus, and some people were offended <laughs> and were ripping them down. That's so funny. Oh my gosh. No one no one joined our club. No one joined our club, Christian. <laughs> it was so worth it. That's that's it was, wonderful. It was priceless though. So I'm I'm very interested in you uh approaching university, I think the way it's intended to be approached of like in a in a liberal arts education. I don't think you're really supposed to have a goal of, oh, I want to be a doctor. I want to be a lawyer. It's supposed to be this very broadening, uh, pursuing things that you're uh, not interested in. Uh, were, were you anxious about that? Was that a was it ever a concern that you didn't have your, your path uh, perfectly formed? Or like, did you have a, a temporary path of a thing that you uh, thought you were going to do? Uh, did you know like, okay, probably something in the area of finance or, or probably something in the area of business? You know, I think you're, you're right. So I never... So I never really had anxiety about it when I was in undergrad. I don't think I've really ever had a lot of anxiety about like, what is the thing or what am I going to do? Which maybe is a blessing or maybe it's a curse. Um, but I think that, you know, it. the reason I did business, for example, business wasn't really something that in large part fascinated me. It was pragmatic. That's why I picked that as a degree choice. And that was actually my first degree when I entered in. So when I came into school, it, you know, I, I selected business as kind of the degree and was admitted directly into the business school. And then I added on political science and public policy and econ and math and stuff because they were more interesting in things that I were, you know, I wanted to learn about. Um, so I think it sort of did become de facto that like, okay, I'll do something in finance. And it wasn't really something I thought a lot about. It was just something I kind of took for granted. I thought, okay, you know, Tyler, here's, here's how you'll approach it. Just do as much as you can do as many majors, make sure you get A's, try to be impressive. And like, you'll get a good job doing something fine. Hmm. That's really what my logic was at the time. And it, and it worked out fine. You know, it was okay. It's just, that's not the best way to, <laughs> to set yourself up for the thing you want to do, whatever that might be. Um, so no anxiety about it, sort of short sightedness in a lot of regards, but, and, hmm. and maybe, Maybe that's a function of being 18 to 20 years old, or I don't know. If you were talking to your 18 or 20-year-old self at SMU, would you have uh, encouraged him to uh, have a, a different strategy? Would you have encouraged him to, to do anything differently? You know, I think, you know, it worked out from the perspective of I was able to get a, a job where, for, you know, I felt engaged and challenged. It's been good. Um, and I've had the opportunity to succeed and, and, you know, be promoted and things like that over the six and some years that I've worked there. Mm -hmm. Um, so it's not as if the way that I handled it was actually inappropriate or didn't work out for me, but I think, yeah, if I were looking back now and talking to 18 year old Tyler, I'd probably just tell him to like chill out a little bit more <laughs> because, <laughs> you know, I, I was like so into this idea of just doing everything for some reason 
that I remember before I even was on campus, like I, I looked through the entire uh, course catalog and all the requirements for all the majors. And I planned out all four years and put it all in a Word doc and like made it look beautiful for some reason. <laughs> I, I, I wish I still had it because I, it was like 20, it was 2010 when I was coming. I did it before I was on campus. So it was that summer. I just learned I had the scholarship and I was like so stoked about that, that I went through and did all that. And I had a Mac at the time that I'd gotten for, for college. So I was just like looking for any excuse to use the thing, I think. And so I used the pages app because that was, you know, that was their word doc version, like application to build out this whole thing. And I can't find it for the life of me, but it was like 15 pages long. I had SMU's wow. logo on there. I like printed it on nice paper. I kept it with me for the first year of college before I trashed it. Amazing. But, you know, I, I think I would tell myself to chill out. Like you don't need, you don't need to do that. You don't, you don't need to do four majors unnecessarily. Like they were great areas of study, but I also could have done two majors and taken electives. I found interesting mm-hmm. would have served a similar purpose. It would have given me more time to actually socialize and do things like that. So I think, you know, that that's an important life lesson and, I've learned it now, but it would have been nice to maybe have internalized that more at the time. That's very interesting. So this, uh, I imagine there's going to be some current students uh, who are president scholars at SMU who are listening to this uh, and like revolting against that idea of, no, I want to, <laughs> I want to make as much, I have, I've got a free ride, yeah. Tyler, and I can take as many yeah. classes as I want for free and I can pursue that everything that I'm interested in. Yeah. Uh, what's, what's the value of spending more time socializing? How do you feel like your life would be different now? if you had taken your advice and chilled out a little bit more and maybe not done everything, maybe done, you know, two majors instead of how I lost count. Is it five, five majors and a minor? It was, it was four majors and a minor. Five would be, would be another world of crazy, I guess somehow. (laughs) And, you know, and I was lucky too, lucky or I don't know what it was. One of my majors really only required a couple classes because there was overlap too, which is public policy, you know, so some of it was political science courses, some was econ and then I took a couple extra courses. So in some ways it sort of meshed together nicely, but you know, and you're right. I think a lot of PSs did this. I, I'm not unique in that regard. Um, I think we, a lot of us looked at it like, you know, holy crap, they've told us we get eight semesters plus a ninth if we want to study abroad where they'll just pay for everything. doesn't matter yeah. how many classes you take. So I took that to heart and I would take, uh, I think two or three semesters, I took like 26 or 27 credit hours. <laughs> oh my gosh. Yeah, just like, I would get it, I would get it approved. I would email Martha and she would forward it to whoever had to approve it. And they would just stamp it because we were PSs. They'd be like, yeah, Amazing. no problem. And I would take like eight or nine courses. I'd take like two wellness courses just because why not? You know, it was like free yoga and free spin class basically. Sure. Sure. And and so, yeah, I think it's understandable why kids have that train of logic. It kind of works out. But I think back to your original question, you're sort of asking, you know, what's the value to the alternative when we're talking to students today who are going through this? And look, the reality is there's never another time in your life, you being whoever the student is we're talking to, where they get to hang around on a campus for four years with other like-minded and not like-minded individuals who are studying something similar, something very different and have crazy ideas and will go and do great things. 
there's a lot of value in just making good friends with these people. It's not even necessarily networking. It's just make friends out of these people, get to know them really well. And I, I, I did a lot of that. I have all my friends are still from SMU and I have a good number of them, but there's nothing wrong with having even more. And I wish that I had more time just to devote to developing those relationships. And I think, you know, you live life once. It's not all about academics. It's not all about work. It's about experience too. And experience is how you interact with people and what you do in your free time. Right. And it, it doesn't just start someday. You know, it's not like you do four years, you crunch, and then, oh, now you get to have the perfect life after college. It's something you have to actively tell yourself you're going to do. And so I would challenge maybe incoming students and existing students not to just overwhelm themselves with this stuff. You have no obligation. You're going to be a phenomenal student no matter what. Just do a good job in the classes that you got to take. Take courses you're interested in and make sure that you're still well-rounded in other regards. That's some solid advice. I also wish younger uh, Christian Jenko in college would have taken that because some of my, <laughs> yeah, I agree. Like uh, that some of my best friends today are from SMU and are, are uh, former president yeah. scholars. And that's, that has so much of a deeper, richer value than like uh, taking another class in computer science that, that has, uh, it, it was interesting intellectually, but the, there's a lot, mm -hmm. there's a lot more holistically to being a, a human. Uh, and yeah, absolutely. You know, it's like, an extra class in computer science or in political science or something is wonderful and it's engaging and it's nice and you don't get the chance to do that again after you graduate. But also, you're an intelligent dude and we're capable enough and we can teach ourselves to some degree and we can interact with people who know the stuff and learn outside of college. There's no reason to overdo it when you're in college, you know? Yeah. You know, you've got yeah. Luke and others who are good friends of yours and, and I, I just think, you know, there's a lot of value in trying to build build that part of one's undergraduate career or life maybe is a better way to put it undergraduate life yeah that's a strong point that you you can teach yourself anything especially for the for the people in this program there's there's nothing oh, yeah. magical about having a, a professor in a room it's a little bit easier but like if, if you're capable of reading a book you can learn anything you there's there's a you, absolutely you don't necessarily especially need to technical stuff yeah absolutely i think the value that an undergrad education brings is you get you know, especially in liberal arts, but in all areas, you get a professor who challenges you to think differently, hopefully, right? So that, you know, maybe you have some belief system or something like that, that now you get thrown into doubt. That's important. And it's the discourse that you develop with your classmates, right? Which you don't get easily outside of that. So having those opportunities, that's the real value of an undergraduate education is just interacting with people. And so I think what I'm trying to get at is there's a second way to do that when you're an undergrad and it's just get involved in more clubs, get involved in more societies and things like that and interact with your peers as well. Hmm. Mustang balls. Uh, Mustang need balls. I, need I say more? <laughs> <laughs> That's still one of the more stupid, stupid things. <laughs> I would love, yeah, please, please interview Roman and ask him about Mustang balls. Oh, I will. <laughs> totally switching gears. Uh, talk to me about uh, your current career. What got you interested in banking? This was uh, your very sure. first job out of college. Is that right? Yes. My first and currently only job other than like tutoring and teaching and things like that when I was an undergrad. Mm -hmm. um, and the first job, which was working as basically, let's call it ice creamer. I worked the fountain portion of, of a local Brahms in Ozark, Missouri. If you've ever cool. been to a Brahms, that was the I first job. But anywho. The current job, yeah. So I work at uh, Bank of America. When I 
When I started back in 2014, it was called Bank of America Merrill Lynch. They had recently, right then, rebranded it to B of A Merrill Lynch. Um, it was historically Merrill Lynch, and now we're B of A Securities. So they've changed names, you know, at least three times over the past decade for whatever reason. But, um, you know, it was kind of just coincidental in a way that that happened to be the thing. You know, like I said, I, I studied business from a pragmatic viewpoint because certainly there's a lot of intellectually interesting things about it. But to me, I think it was pragmatic in that I wanted to ensure I had a good sort of stable job leaving college. That was the objective. And, uh, you know, I took an interest in finance specifically in undergrad. My business degree was in risk management, which is kind of a subdivision in finance. Um, and, and so it kind of made sense, you know, I'll go into banking. This is a solid career. Let's do that. And the way I stumbled on it was kind of funny too. So it, it wasn't, I did not apply for, I think most kids who are trying to get into investment banks, you know, you may apply to 20 of them and you may interview at 10 or 15 of these places before one takes you. And generally you have to do an internship kind of after your junior year. And that's like a longer term, a 10 week long interview effectively. And hopefully you get an offer. Um, <clears throat> what I did again, it was luck or convenience or something. I was very close. Do you know Professor Hollyfield by chance? Jim Hollyfield? Hollyfield. I don't think so now. Maybe. So he was, and still is, he's in the political science department. I had a couple of classes with him. He is the faculty head to the Tower Center on the campus. And the Tower Center is the think tank on campus that's named after John Goodwin Tower, who was the first Republican senator, I believe, in the state of Texas after the state turned red in the 60s. Bunch of history to all that stuff doesn't really matter, but he's the head of the Tower Center. And I, for my uh, sophomore, junior, and senior years was the head of kind of the student wing of the Tower Center. That's how I was involved outside of classes, basically. Um, and so we knew each other pretty well. And it just so happened that he knew someone who worked at B of A in their public finance group. And that individual, his name's Brandon Walker, who's a co-worker of mine now. Uh, Brandon reached out to Hollyfield and said, hey, like, give me a couple of good names for people we're looking to hire. Hollyfield put my name forward. I interviewed and got the job. and was like, okay, let's do this. So it, it was convenience. I guess that's the power of networking right there, you know? Yeah. So it saved me having to, it was right around the time I was starting to ramp up, like figure out, okay, I got to find a job. Like, how do I do this? What do I need to do? And then this just sort of fell into my lap. So I got very lucky and I didn't have to deal with the grind of trying to figure out what job I was going to do. And it also ended up being, um, perfectly lined up with my areas of study. So, you know, um, public finance, basically what we do is we, um, we work with municipalities, we work with, which are local government entities, we work with state entities, and we work with state authorities, and any, any sort of entity or authority that derives its um, power from a state entity. So, basically governmental entities other than the federal government. We also work okay. with not-for-profits. So this is, you know, that made sense to me because I'm studying political science and public policy, and this is basically policy, but on the business side. Hmm. Um, you know, and I'd studied business and economics, so it made a lot of sense to me at the time. And and that's that's how I got into it, kind of found out about it. What does that look like day to day. Uh, and for, for uh, someone who may not be totally following along with uh, what 
working with a, a government entity other than the federal government to uh, underwrite bonded debt might look like. Uh, what does that What does that mean? And and how do you sure. do that? <laughs> so, so um, maybe sort of a larger or more broader perspective is to talk about investment banking more generally. So um, I like to, when I describe what I do, if I have enough time to describe it well, I try to step back and say, okay, like most banking as we think of it is what we would call commercial banking. So that's if you bank at Chase Bank or at B of A, you go into a commercial bank and you have a checking account, you have a savings account, you can go there to get a mortgage, you can kick out a personal loan, an auto loan, whatever you want. That's commercial banking. There's another area of finance called investment banking. You, you don't walk into an investment banking office and ask for, you know, basically personalized products as an individual. Investment banking is kind of a larger end version of what commercial or retail banking does. Um, and so the investment bank kind of its objective is to provide, provide financing to large entities in a large sense. So it could be $500 million loans, we would call them bonds, or it could be an equity um, issue as well. So investment banks create um, investable securities. So if you have some savings and you go out and you want to invest those, you'll either purchase equities, which are shares of stock. You know, you could go buy Tesla stock, you could go buy B of A stock, whatever you want. Mm -hmm. Those shares of stock had to be issued at some point in time. And there's a whole process about that. How do we do it? What do we price it in an IPO, an initial public offering? Um, all of that is done by an investment bank somewhere. And it's uh, underwrite, underwritten and, and issued and, and sold off into the market. And then it trades in the stock market, which is the secondary market for that issue. So that's the equity side of investment banking. Okay. Then there's the, the debt side of investment banking, which has to do with bonds. So you might think, you know, maybe you don't buy equity for Tesla or B of A, but maybe you buy their bonds. So if Tesla needs to build a factory, right, they might issue $500 million of bonds in the market. So they would go to Bank of America or they would go to JP Morgan and we would basically underwrite, which is basically a fancy way. There's a, number, there's a reason why we call it that, but it's a fancy way to say we sell bonds on their behalf to investors in the primary market we raise $500 million of proceeds and we give it to Tesla to go build their factory and do whatever they want. And then Tesla basically pays a paying agent over a period of time, the debt service on those bonds and the principal, and it flows back to investors. So specifically what I do is bonds. I focus on bonds. I don't do anything on the equity side of the market. And, and the reason for that is because my clients are public entities, so they don't have equity. You can't purchase equity in the city of Dallas. That'd be insane. You know, but the city of Dallas issues oodles of debt to do a lot of different things. So they're going to issue debt to finance their sewer system, their clean water system, their electrical system. Uh, all all of that is financed with municipal debt um, to rebuild and fix up roads or to build roads for the first time. So you may notice if you're driving through Dallas, the roads are largely terrible, and that's because they haven't issued bonds for the road system in years. And <laughs> it's just, they haven't had the ability to, for whatever reason, you know, they were busy four or three years ago with the whole, um, did you hear anything in the news a couple of years back about Dallas's pension issues? Oh, vaguely Maybe? remind me. It was, it, so it was a big issue, I think three or four years ago across the whole nation. 
all major cities had a lot of pension issues wherein basically the market kind of went down. I think this was 2015, 16, something like that. And it, would, it became very evident that major cities like Chicago, Los Angeles, New York, um, Dallas, Houston had these massive pension obligations to pay to their policemen and their firefighters and their teachers and basically hadn't really fully funded that pension system the way that they should. Mm. So they're maybe not, you know, uh, insolvent, but or whatever you want to call it, but certainly close. And it's a problem because the only way that municipalities can raise money is through taxes and fees. And in order to make something like this actuarially sound, they have to raise taxes a lot. So it was an issue three or four years ago or whenever it was. And it basically took up most of the bandwidth of public policy at the time. And so they didn't focus on road bills. And that's why we have cruddy roads today. So wow. there you go. Hopefully they figure that out. Yeah. So, but oh, sorry, go ahead. Because the uh, municipality went through this financial crisis years ago, they're, they're still feeling ripples of it today of uh, that, that uh, strained them on cash. And then they yeah. uh, had to use the bonds that they would get through Bank of America or somewhere else uh, towards that uh, pension fund instead of on the infrastructure. Is that right? It, it sort of. So it, it wasn't that they used the money that they otherwise would have used on roads for the pension system. It was more that, um, you know, there are public officials who only have so much time and ability to sort of politically get things done. And so when this pension issue reared its ugly head, that was their area of focus. So basically bringing road bonds to vote for voter authorization and actually focusing on it just never happened. It basically fell to the wayside. Hmm. Um, so certainly they could, but the issue is, you know, in order to issue a billion dollars, let's say, or $2 billion of of bonds, the city of Dallas or Dallas County has to go to voters in May or in August or no November, May or November, and basically get approval by voters to issue those bonds because that debt will ultimately be paid with property taxes and it has to be approved by the people paying the property taxes and it would require probably a tax raise. So I think at the time there was a fear that if they go to do, you know, a vote on that, it's going to get rejected because people already are expecting a tax increase due to pension issues and they didn't want to overly stress, you know, the citizens, the residents of Dallas. Um, it'll be something they handle with time. But but it is a good point that you make. Actions that are happening today have really long-term effects on these entities over a longer period of time. So today we're all self-quarantining. We're, you know, sheltering in place or whatever. So no one's driving or certainly far fewer people are driving around. And so like, you know, if you take the tollway or the toll road, NTTA's toll road, that thing was built and funded with municipal debt. Hmm. Um, it was, we, we, as well as a number of banks issued bonds over a period of time to provide financing to NTTA, the North, uh, North Texas Tollway Authority, right? And then they used all that money to build all these wonderful highways. And then they pay the debt service on that with all the, the revenues that they get basically from driving it. But the issue is if we have a month or two or three, when people are just sitting in their houses and not driving and paying fees on this stuff, then where's their money coming from to pay this debt service? So a lot of these entities who have revenue that is actually paying the debt service on these bonds are now in a pickle 
and and we don't know how it'll work out, but longer term, they'll have to probably restructure their debt. They may have to borrow in the short term to pay debt. Um, and, and it'll dramatically affect how they operate over the next couple of years. They may not do expansions that they intended to do over the next two years. You may actually see less infrastructural development than otherwise would have occurred because of what's happening today. And no one would think how this affects your local toll road, but the reality is it has a massive effect akin to what's happening to you know restaurants right now. Mm-hmm. We are uh, in what I hope is the peak of the, the height of the COVID-19 crisis, uh, recording this in early April. So we just went through a, a big market correction. What's your take on this financially? Do you think these ripples of, of things like there are less people driving, so uh, the toll road isn't getting the revenue so that it can service the debt? Do you think these things are going to snowball into a, uh, a recession? Do you think this is going to be another financial crisis akin to the, uh, the 2008 uh, financial crisis? What's your, what's your take on this from the finance side? What do you think is going to happen? Um, well, with the disclaimer that I'm no economist and certainly don't have a crystal ball, um, you know, my read on it is, it, I think we almost inevitably will have some sort of recession. Um, you know, they're saying that, I forget, like six and a half million people last week filed for unemployment or something. Yeah. Oh, you know, I've seen the graph. You, it's, it's horrifying. Oh, it's terrible. I saw one, I'll find it after this and send it to you if I, if I remember, but somebody made a graph over the last like 20 years or something of unemployment. And they put it to the, if do you remember, did you have a GameCube when you were younger? I didn't know. I had a Wii. Okay. Well, okay. So the GameCube, when you'd start a game had like this music that is just, you'd know it oh, if you heard it. Yeah. Something like that. I'll, I'll insert it, it gra- right here. It's, it's this sound right here. That's, that's where I'll insert it. <laughs> oh, perfect. I love it. Please do. Okay. So that's that's a phenomenal. Please put that in there. And I will find the, uh, the uh, video of this. But somebody made an unemployment graph over 20 years. And the way the song ends, which people will have just heard, is it like pops at the end. And so it's mirrored with this unemployment graph over time graphing itself and it's just (laughs) and it just jumps Uh, up and it's that's where we are you know you have unemployment right now that hasn't occurred since 1940 Mm -hmm. so even if it's temporary we're talking three months the reality is there's massive repercussions of people not being employed you have a, a local restaurant that's been in business for a decade down the street just they didn't just close temporarily they just said we're we're closing down losing the spring season makes it entirely impossible for them to operate profitably moving forward. Hmm. They've given up and they're just not paying their lease anymore. And they've, they're just done. The number of businesses, restaurants in particular, but certainly small businesses that will go through that is going to be insane. And this has long-term effects wherein, okay, people get unemployed for a couple of months. It sets them back. They don't have savings anymore. And that has dramatic effects on what their life trajectories are like in terms of financial success what they're able to purchase, their discretionary spending drops, you know, for years, which means that that area of the economy, you know, people buying gizmos and gadgets and stuff, that's going to be less profitable too. So just sort of the the circular nature of all of this, I think very clearly means, well, we can't say we're in a recession by definition yet, because you have to have, I think, two quarters of negative growth or something like that, which we have not had yet. We almost certainly will. I think it's very likely, you know, we had like 12 years or something of 
of growth, which was the longest growth period since the 40s. Recessions tend to happen every decade. It's reasonable to assume it would have happened pretty soon anyway. It just might not have been this bad. So, you know, the financial situation we're in, it's not the end of times. Nobody needs to freak out. It's very different from what happened in 2008. 2008 was a financial issue that then dominated into the economy more broadly. This is a service-based issue because people cannot do service. That's now, you know, dominoing into the larger economy. There's there's nothing wrong with the financial system. It's mm-hmm. corrected itself. The stock market dropped 30%. It's gone, I think, back up another 5% or something. That's good. It's probably where they need to be. Stocks were like incredibly overvalued before this. So it's a great time, most likely, to purchase them if you want to buy some. You know, but banks are sitting on oodles of cash. The Federal Reserve has basically said that they'll, you know, they'll give money to whoever wants it without any limitation. So if you want to take out a loan, there is very cheap money out there. Interest rates are still super low. Um, When all this started, the sort of insanity with the market was frightening, but it's settled and it seems reasonable now. So I think it's it's going to be okay. It's just, we're going to have a recession. A lot of people, unfortunately, have lost their jobs. Hopefully the federal government and policymakers are thoughtful enough to, you know, be kind to the people who've lost their jobs and be very thoughtful and, and um, good about how much unemployment insurance and things is actually out there and who it's available to. Because that's mm-hmm. the real key here is making sure that people can still pay their bills and continue to live reasonable lives until the economy gets healthy again. As someone currently running a business, I'm loving these loans. Uh, I've been talking oh, yeah. to my accountant nonstop. I might just get like tens of thousands of dollars for free, uh, which yes, great. oh, <laughs> it's crazy. You really, I mean, right now, if if you are a small business and this doesn't really, the economy hasn't really dramatically affected you negatively, this is a wonderful time to just. It, it sounds stupid, but just borrow boatloads of cash and sit on it for a little while, or yeah. invest it in your own whatever you need to do in your technology, whatever. It's a yeah. great time because all this money is, in essence, just flowing directly from the Federal Reserve. Yeah. And, and you know, it'll go back to them eventually, but who knows? It is frightening to think what possible inflation could be after all this, but who knows, you know? Is that, that leads to my next question. With your, with your insider knowledge of banking and, and uh, economics and finance, uh, for, for most of the PSs listening to this, uh, they're probably not as affected uh, as most people uh, with their job or, or financially. Uh, what's your investing advice? What, how, how should people be thinking about uh, where to be putting their money? Uh, maybe if they, if they don't have a business, is that, do you have like a, a hot stock tip? <laughs> what's your, oh God. What's the, the strategy that you recommend? <laughs> I wish I did. Um, my investment strategy is pretty boring, but it's also shaped by, um, as anyone's investment strategy should be, it is shaped by, you know, my current, um, place in life and what I expect to be doing. So as I imagine, we'll probably talk about, I'm going to medical school in, in the fall. So I basically the last six years I've kind of budgeted out and tried to save money and set it aside so that I can be thoughtful about how I pay for school and my own living for the next four or five years. So in essence, all of my, all of my savings are invested in cash equivalents, which is U.S. Treasury bonds. And there's some small wow. stock here and there, but it, which for anyone in their 20s is generally terrible advice. So <laughs> I, I, I would not advise that anyone do that. The reason for me is, you know, I know what my next year's cost is going to be. I got to pay for a year of med school and I got to pay for my own cost of living for, you know, my mortgage and all this stuff and food and whatever I need for a year. And then I got to do that 
again for my second, third, and fourth years. So I know with some certainty what my expected costs are, and I just want to ensure that I can pay those, you know. And so U.S. Treasury bonds and debt like that is ideal for me because I'm not really trying to make high return. Um, so I don't have great advice. I would say if you have money right now or the next month or two is a wonderful time to try to look at companies and or, or you know entities who you can purchase stock in and, and find one that you think, okay, like this company is going to be around for a long time or, oh, this company is definitely, you know, technologically innovative and they're going to disrupt this marketplace or this industry. Find those ones because right now is when they're probably the lowest they're going to be. You know, the market just dropped 30%. This is when you dump cash in. And I may even just take like half of my savings and just do that because I'm not super worried that it's going to drop a whole lot more. It's already down 30%. Back in mm -hmm. 2008, it dropped 49%. Wow. Um, you know, could go down another 20% if it's anything like that. I'm going to personally wait another couple of months to see how COVID-19 flushes out and what the unemployment situation is really like before I purchase anything. But mm -hmm. if it's about where it is now or if it's a little lower, I'll just probably dump some money in and probably yeah. not in specific stocks, just in a general ETF or something. But yeah, you're in a great position with a with a huge bond position. That's amazing. Yeah, you uh, you're very well situated to, I, uh, to take advantage of stocks. I just got very lucky is the reality of it. And that's the other thing too, when you're investing and trying to play it, some of it is talent or making the right call, but most of it's just getting lucky. You know, no one would have predicted that, you know, back last November, nobody was expecting that the whole world's economy would be shut down for months and the stock market would plummet 30 ish percent because there's, you know, a pandemic going on and people are just staying in their houses because they're afraid of getting sick. So, mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, it's, it's kind of like a lottery. Um, but, but I was lucky in that I was not long in really any stock at the time. I have two shares of Tesla because I thought it was hilarious when I bought it like two years ago <laughs> because Elon is insane. And I thought it would be funny if he took it private and I somehow owned like one, one millionth of the company or something. <laughs> That's so funny. Um, but you, I'd, I'd alas, to, he didn't take it private. I'd love to talk a little bit more about your Tesla uh, with the, oh, your, your, the, the way that you uh, systematize it. Mm -hmm. is great. But first, oh my gosh, <laughs> sure. you're, you're going to medical school? Where did that come from, Tyler? Where, <laughs> I, when I first heard about this, I think it was a, yeah. a, a year, year and a half ago, uh, someone was like, oh sure. yeah, Tyler's uh, studying for his MCAT right now. And I was like, Tyler, Crazy. no, he does, he does finance and like economics and things. The guy works what is he doing? Yeah. What's, <laughs> what on earth? Uh, so my question is like, what, what, where did, where did this come from? What's the, what's the motivation behind it? Uh, sure. Cause this is a huge life change. Uh, what, where did yeah. this come from? I, I will have the wonderful joy of going from making an income to being incomeless for like the next five years. So it's oodles of fun, <laughs> but you know, it's, I think, so I've worked, I graduated in 2014. It's been six years, I guess. So I've worked for six years and I think a year or two into it, this kind of goes back to what I was saying about undergrad. You know, I studied things I found interesting and that I found challenging, but I didn't really know, you know, what is the thing I want to do, right? Or, or how, do, how does my area of study really inform that? And I'm okay that it, it didn't necessarily because I think you should study things that you find interesting and engaging. Mm -hmm. Um, but 
you know, the reality was up until about four years ago, I never seriously thought, you know, what should the next 20, 30, 40 years really look like? What is the thing I want to do where I feel like I can be passionate about it? And, you know, just after a lot of thought, I came to realize or came to the conclusion that while I find my job engaging and challenging, it's, it's just not the thing I'm passionate about for, you know, a 30 or 40 year career. Um, you know, I'm not cut out probably to be in an office space 12 or 14 hours a day at a computer. I love doing computer stuff. It's, I love, you know, programming stuff and going crazy in Excel, but you know, not at a bank for 14 hours a day. So Hmm. I think that was kind of the catalyst to be like, well, let's think about what this is. And then I came to the second realization that what I really want to do is you know, I want something that is still academically engaging, challenging, and I want to do something where I get to interact with people uh, one-on-one, be an asset to them and, and help others. Um, and, you know, eventually I just landed on medicine. I thought, look, this is fascinating, right? From a scientific perspective, from an intellectual perspective, like it's certainly challenging in that regard and it'll provide that to me. And it gives me the, the benefit of getting to work directly with people. And, and that's really what I want to do. So it, it kind of goes back when I was younger, back in like early high school. I, I always wanted to be a doctor. I didn't have a good reason for it. I was a child and wanted to be a doctor. <laughs> now, sure. 10 years later, I have a reason for it. So it is 180 degrees opposite of what I had been doing and what I studied in undergrad. You know, I didn't even have any of my prereqs. I didn't even have bio 101. So four years back, I... Uh, I basically sat myself down and thought like, okay, how, how the hell do I do this? I went to like UT Southwestern's website and looked up all the prereqs. I went to McGovern's website. I went to like Harvard's website. Harvard doesn't accept online classes. So I was like, well, can't do that. But UT Southwestern and UT McGovern do. So basically I've just planned a budget over four years from when I started doing this to make sure I could afford it. And then I built out a little timeline on how I would knock out the sort of like 15 or whatever prereq courses and, um, I enrolled online, actually, at the University of New England. They have um, basically an online post-baccalaureate program for people who want to become nurses or become doctors or whatever, but can't actually take the courses in person. You know, I was juggling a job where I have to fly around all the time and do stuff and work 12 or more hours in the office every day, so I couldn't take in-person courses at the time. Um, So I did that. I started doing those courses in late 16. I did online courses through 17 and 18. I basically took all my intro bio courses and chem courses, physics. I even took OCHEM online. I had to do labs. I was given like lab packets. I had to pay a couple hundred bucks for each of them and I would Hmm. keep them in my kitchen and I'd have to like video things and take photos and evidence <laughs> it and submit it for my classes, you know? So I did that for two and a half years. And then last spring I enrolled at UTD to finish like four or five courses in person. Cause I thought that that would be important for getting a letter of recommendation and to have, mm. you know, in-person courses again, as I applied so that these schools knew I was serious about it and, and it worked out. So thank goodness. And then last summer uh, I finished UTD in May. I finished some physics courses online in June. And uh, then I took the MCAT the second week of July. And I studied the first two weeks, first week and a half of July for that. And 
then just did applications and everything, basically to schools in Texas, kind of in Austin and San Antonio, Houston, Dallas. Amazing. And uh, Oodles of fun planning for all that stuff. But it's it's crazy to me, you know, you you have an idea and you work toward it, and four or five years later, something actually comes of it. So. And you can completely switch careers. This is nuts. And you you just had to sneak yeah. in like that that one extra degree. Four, I four know. major, four to minor wasn't <laughs> there, enough for you. There, <laughs> there is definitely some uh, residual saltiness about the fact that young Tyler thought it would be great to shove four degrees in a minor in, none of which helped him whatsoever in what he's currently doing. <laughs> you know, so oh, having to take 14 courses online in my free time outside of work was not a lot of fun. The, the subject material is great. I love it, but it's just, you know, you work sitting at a computer in the office all day and then you come home to sit at your desktop to do more. It's not really yeah. what you want to do, but, but it worked out fine. And, and if anyone is out there listening to this and they're like, I would love to do something different. I think the, the, maybe the one thing that's worth taking from this is you definitely can do it. You just have to have a plan. You have to follow it. And it's okay to step sideways a little bit here and there. Just generally try to follow it and it'll work out. But you do have to have a plan or it just never happens. I love it. I'm so impressed with you. You effectively went to college again and put together your own curriculum this time and pieced together what you would need. And it worked. You, uh, I think you're, are you in the middle of applications? What's the, what's the step that you're currently on? So I um, basically after the MCAT last July, when I finished the MCAT, in mid-July. Took a month to get it back, so I got it back end of August. So I spent the end of July and the beginning of August doing all my applications. This was 2019. And I applied to um, UT McGovern in Houston, UT Southwestern here in Dallas, UT San Antonio, UT Austin, which is Dell, um, and then uh, Baylor College of Medicine down in Houston. So I submitted all of those kind of right after I got, or no, right before I actually got my MCAT score. So I didn't even know if I did well. I kind of thought I bombed it out, but I submitted all my applications. And then like two weeks later, my MCAT scores came in and mm -hmm. got sent off to all the schools. So I applied last August. Uh, I interviewed at all the schools over the fall, basically in October and November. And um, I got an early offer from McGovern last October. So I've had that for gosh, six, six months now, almost. Um, and that's where I'm intending on going. So I've got an offer. I'll be going down there end of July. And I'm waiting still to hear technically from Southwestern here in Dallas and Baylor uh, down in Houston. And, you know, maybe it'll be a different school, but for now it's McGovern. And uh, honestly, I was just flabbergasted that they gave me interview offers because I did like, you know, I had no shadowing experience. I shadowed uh, actually, I had very little shadowing experience is what I should say. That I found really difficult to do because, you know, you're working. How do you how do you shadow a doctor when you're working full time? Sure. Um, but Lindsay and Jacob Fleming, who I'm sure you know Jacob pretty well. Oh, um, yes. They're uh, they're also on my queue to, to interview. Oh, good. I'm glad. They're incredibly kind people and they're wonderful. And Lindsay was in my class, uh, graduated in 2014, too. Um, Lindsay was, her father is basically a pediatrician in kind of North Dallas. Um, and so she connected me with him and he let me shadow him twice. So I got, you know, two full days of shadowing experience and he gave me some great advice on how I should approach applying and all this stuff. Jacob was super nice. Like shout out to both of them for just being way too kind to me. We don't, you know, I hadn't even really interacted with them in a couple of years, but he reviewed parts of my application and my, you know, my, uh, 
personal essay or personal statement and all that was super helpful. And I forget why I'm, what I'm rambling about here, but I guess there's my shout out to them just saying that that was super helpful (laughs) to me because God, I mean, I I didn't even know, you know, if they would look at my application because it's like, this is a guy who he's worked in finance. He has absolutely no pre-med experience, no shadowing, has never been in a hospital. I candy striped when I was in like junior high 15 years ago or something. And I'm sorry, what is what is candy striping? Uh, it's just like um, volunteering uh, at a hospital where you basically you go into oh. rooms and you talk to patients. Maybe you bring them their lunch at the most. You know, gotcha. I, I think it's the name. The history is they like in the '40s or something. Volunteers used to wear maybe sort of red and white striped clothing to do it. Interesting. So you could okay. know who they were, and so it was called candy striping because they looked like candy canes. Okay. I think, well, I'll look up that, confirm that's not a lie, but <laughs> something like that. Um, and, uh, but, but anywho, I, again, I'm just flabbergasted. Anyone even gave me interviews. So I was very glad. I just wasn't sure what that would look like, which maybe is more, uh, sort of confirmation to anyone who may be listening. If you, if there's something else you want to do, just work toward it, prove to people that you've worked toward it and they'll, they'll consider you, you know? People just want to see that you you do give a damn and that it is something you're serious about, and you'll certainly be taken seriously. This is a this this relates to a, a conversation I just had with uh, Jupin, who's a, a PS who graduated mm-hmm. in uh, I think twenty I think twenty twelve. Uh, she was episode okay. number two uh, for people listening. Uh, she, <laughs> you, you mentioned that like you you uh, had this kind of vague motivation of that you wanted to go into medicine and, and couldn't really put your finger on it. Uh, when I asked her what her original motivation was to become a doctor, uh, she said that as a child, she wanted a job where she could afford to buy two pools. Uh, so <laughs> little, little, uh, baby Jupiter, that was that was her motivation. Uh, but we talked a lot about That's good enough reason. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> we talked a lot about the the prevalence of physicians who are stuck being doctors who yeah. feel trapped, who feel like they don't really have a choice, who like, you know, immediately after college went directly into medical school uh, and without really doing shadowing experience or without really uh, having the the sort of planning that you have in place of uh, realizing that this was actually something that they wanted to do. Uh, for mm-hmm. people who are out there who maybe are uh, a little bummed out with their office job and, you know, hanging out on a, on a computer for uh, most of the day, 14 hours a day, uh, what what was your process for deciding that this was a worthwhile investment for, you know, the last four years for planning for this? And uh, I imagine a, a bunch of money to it, you, you yeah. had to actually pay for college this time. Uh, <laughs> I know how, that's true. <laughs> uh, how, Dang. How did you, yeah, right. Uh, it averages out to like not very much, I, I guess, per class. Uh, but how yeah, did you, not, how did not you, the worst thing, but yes. How did you gain that certainty to decide that that was something that you wanted to do? Uh, how, or, or is this kind of still an unsure process? And uh, you, you might work a few years as a doctor and, and move on to something else. Uh, what's the, what's your process for for deciding how to make that big of a move and that big of a career change? Sure, and that and that's a great question. It's something I still, you know, have. Not, not worries about or anything like that, but it's something that's still in the back of my mind. You know, it's like, is this the right thing for me? Um, and I, I strongly believe that it is, but I won't know until I am a doctor in a lot of ways. You know, wh- what does it mean to be a doctor? I, I can't say because I haven't been one. So I can't say that it really is the perfect thing for me. I can say that I have a passion 
for what I believe it to be and for the end results that medicine provides to patients and things like that, you know? Um, and I, I think the context of having worked for six years is, is pretty invaluable to me. The reality is in any job, when you work for other people, the majority of it will be things you don't care to do or that tend to be time wasting. Mm -hmm. um, you know, for what I do day to day now, it, let's say the city of Dallas is issuing a billion dollars to build roads. You know, the, the end result is a single day in which we price all their bonds and find investors to purchase them. It's literally one day's worth of work, but it takes months to get to that point. And the number of things you have to do to win a deal and do all this other stuff seems just dumb in the interim sometimes. Uh, and there's a lot of just dumbness to it. And, and so I think, look, in medicine, I don't doubt that there's a similar just sort of ugh, factor to parts of it. You know, no career and no job is perfect. And so already having experienced some of that allows me to contextualize things and, and come to a good understanding that, you know, one's career should not be everything in one's life, right? You, you got to have things outside of that. And there's nothing that's going to be, no career is going to be perfect for someone. And so I think approaching it from that perspective allows me to be okay with whatever it is that happens. You know, I don't know what type of doctor I want to be. I, I really, I, I'm leaning towards some area of primary care is what I like in, in an idea, but I've not, other than having shadowed a pediatrician twice, and I had a lot of fun doing it. I thought it was wonderful. I, I don't know. So, you know, I think what I'm getting at is I'm flexible on it. For me, going to medical school is sort of like the next adventure. I love the idea of wanting to be a doctor and of being a doctor. I also love the idea of being in school again, of taking mm -hmm. classes and of learning. That's part of it. I always knew I wanted to go back to school and kind of do things again and learn more. And I wanted to do it in something different. So 50% of going to medical school for me is literally just the event of going to school, experiencing and learning. And I think that medicine as sort of a profession and as an academic experience is, you know, wonderful in and of itself because it's sort of like this um, understanding of what it means to be human, right? To be able to heal and to be able to care for people, even if you weren't a doctor, having that ability is a wonderful thing. So I fully intend and plan to be a doctor and that is what I intend to have as my profession for the next 30 or 40 years or whatever. But, you know, if, if I did it for five years and decided that there is some way that I could use this knowledge that were better, I'll, so be it. That's fine by me. I'm happy to be flexible on whatever it is. And so I think, you know, it doesn't bother me to, to accept the reality that things may not work out perfectly and I may not actually end up liking practicing medicine specifically. You know, because I, I, I'm still learning an incredible life skill and gaining an incredible amount of knowledge that I am confident I can use in some way to, you know, better myself and to better the world around me. I may not know what all that is, and I think that's okay now, at least. It sounds like the you're, you're following the strategy that you have been following uh, since college of, of pursuing things that you're interested in. And the, the primary mm -hmm. motivation for switching careers is that the end result of medicine uh, is making such a more tangible difference uh, that, that you feel like uh, in the in the job that you're at now, yes, you're making a meaningful contribution and, and approving these uh, you know billion dollar bonds that will improve roads and improve the lives of millions of people. But that's so far removed from 
the, the work that you're doing, uh, working for 16 hours a day. So uh, you, you see that it's a very high probability choice of uh, the, the career and the practice and the discipline of medicine uh, will be more fulfilling than, uh, than being in yeah. banking. Is that right? I think, I think you hit it. You hit the nail right on the head. Um, you know, again, I think banking is very engaging, challenging, entertaining, all of these things. There is a large disconnect between the things that I do and the reality that they help to create. Um, and I think that in medicine, depending on what area of medicine you go into, and there's a, a lot of, you know, disclaimers there, but the thing that's fascinating to me about it is I get to work directly with someone who has a problem, right? And hopefully be the person who can help them solve that problem for themselves. And I get to do it one-on-one -on -one and really be an asset to them in their lives. That isn't really something I do now. So I think the sort of directness of the effect of my work, the end effect or end result of my work, just being able to see that in and of itself will be a lot more valuable to me in sort of being able to appreciate the thing that I do. And I'm very confident that that is something that will provide, you know, a sense of sort of purpose in my work and fulfillment. And, and I, that's a lot of what makes me confident about enjoying being in medicine, even though I'm, again, I'm confident there's a lot of things about it that can just be frustrating and terrible too. But I'm sure that's true of just about any career that one goes into. Switching gears from talking about career, uh, I would love to talk about your life because you, since college, have lived such a fun life. I remember the the joke in school was that you you were like a nineteen year old grandpa because you were yeah. like who in college is Republican? Uh, that was, uh, yeah, that was like, yeah, exactly. But you were so yeah. you were so nice about it. You were like <laughs> being. Uh, being yeah. like contrarian to the the group of I, I think the the archetype of uh, a president scholar is like more more liberal minded, uh, especially yeah, in university. Yeah. Uh, and you're walking around like in bow ties, and now you're yeah, you're yeah. gardening. Uh, ridiculous. Yes. So two things I'd love to talk about are uh, you own a house, which mm -hmm. uh, is very unusual for someone your age. You're uh, 28 right now. Is that right? Uh-huh. Yeah. Cool. And I think you've, I remember you owning the house, like <laughs> in my head, you owned I, it like when you were still in school. <laughs> What's, what was I, the... wish, I wish that were true. It would have been way cheaper then. <laughs> but um, yeah, I, the... uh, Go ahead. what was the, sorry. Um, so I, I purchased my house back in 2015. So I'd worked a year. And basically, I just saved up everything I could over my first year of work to get enough money for a down payment and thought, like, let's just bite this bullet and do this thing. Um, and that was the first thing I did with all my savings, basically. I just, you know, paid rent for a year and every extra penny I could get, I dumped into a bank account and used to make the down payment on a house and then moved over here. So I've been in this house for five years now. So I think I was I was 23, I guess, when I bought it. Okay. Or just, That's amazing. Just turned That's 23. so young. Yeah, I got, I got very lucky, you know, in a lot of regards. And the market was at a place at the time where I could afford a house. If it were where it is now and I were starting out my career, it wouldn't really be a doable thing. Um, so it's just there's a lot of luck to life, and I lucked out in a lot of ways. Um, and then you mentioned the, doc, or the, the grandpa thing, and I don't know if – I may have never mentioned this to you. I just think it's so funny. But, yeah, people would call me grandpa or gramps jokingly and then it latched on and just stuck with me forever and Allison <laughs> Leopold who was a PS in my year she was a dancer and also an engineer 
and I think math, but uh, she just took to calling me Gramps. So I would call her granddaughter or kiddo and we're still very yes. good friends and I still call her kiddo and she still calls me Gramps. I don't know why, but we do. And for Christmas, my freshman year, she went to the SMU bookshop. She found an SMU coffee cup, a coffee mug that oh, has no. the Mustang on it. And it says, um, SMU grandpa. I still have this thing. It's a 10 year old coffee mug. I use it all the time. Like two years ago, I accidentally chipped the bottom of it. Cause like I clinked it on the, the countertop a little too hard and I was oh, so upset, no. but it still works perfect. You know, it's just a little cracked. Yeah. <laughs> so that yeah, you know, a grandpa would have a slightly chipped SMU grandpa and, mug. and never throw it out. Yeah. So <laughs> yeah, I guess I was granddaughter. goofy. In that oh my yeah. gosh. But I'll never throw that thing away. You know, it's just like, that's part of the undergrad experience being the grandpa for whatever reason. That's so funny. Uh, we uh, are, are uh, almost out of time. Uh, so I'd love oh, if gosh. you could just talk okay. briefly about uh, your Tesla. I'm, this is something that I'm, I'm very uh, envious of in your life. Uh, and this also seems like something that you like planned very methodically for that you, uh, when I was talking to you about it, you were like rattling off all the numbers. You knew the exact number of kilowatt hours and we're, we're doing the math of like how long it takes to yeah. drive in the garage. <laughs> uh, how did you, how did you make that decision to buy the car and, and what, how do you, uh, <laughs> how do you how do you feel like that fits into your life and your uh and your plan sure so you know i it it wasn't i think you know anytime you buy a new car it's just by default a poor financial decision so it's it's not a great financial decision but at the time i you know i'd been budgeting to go to school for the longest time and all this stuff and it just happened to be in the budget if i wanted to do this i could make it happen and so I was dumb enough to be bored one weekend and to go test drive one because I was like, you know, this was like two years ago. They had just kind of come out with the Model 3 and were starting to get some out on the road. So I'd seen some more and I was interested in the idea of like, okay, like electric cars can actually be good vehicles. Let's go see how these things do. And of course, if you test drive one of these things, like they put you behind the wheel, they're just so stupid cool. Like you'll yes. buy one, whether or not it's a good decision. Oh, and like spaceships. Oh, they're just so stupid cool. It's like, I, I've never been a big car person. I don't really care about roaring an engine or even going fast. But for some reason after that, then I started to care. And not about all cars, but electric cars I find fascinating. It's like, I can, I can park this thing in my garage, plug it in, fill up 75 kilowatt hours of a battery, which is like, I don't know how to contextualize that. I use, well, my house uh, in the summer for context, and I run the AC like there's no tomorrow in the summer because I like it cold. So it'll be like 68 degrees when it's like 110 outside. So burning energy, basically. But I, I might use 1,800 for an entire month. My house, the entire house might use 1,800 kilowatt hours. So the battery of my car can hold 75 kilowatt hours, which is you know about, what, 1 20th of what my entire house uses in a month just to contextualize how much energy that is. It's just crazy to me. I can plug this thing in and I can drive 300 miles. I can move 4,000 pounds, four and a half thousand pounds of mass, 300 miles by just plugging something in, in my garage. Amazing. It's mind boggling to me, but you know, I, I think the decision to get it really was just, I think, you know, they're not perfect, but certainly they're better for the environment. There's all the touchy-feely, warm, happy reasons to do it. Certainly those were part of the decision factor, but the real reason was just like, 
it was a splurge thing I did and it was fun. And, and they're, they're really kind of like, they're more toy than they are car somehow. <laughs> so I think yeah. it's just, I got real excited about it. It was like, okay, I can budget for this. And then I just did it, you know? It's like um, a computer with wheels and a motor. It, it's yeah, exactly. Like I said, I've never gotten just exciting about other cars before this. I had a Honda that I still have at the moment and it's perfect. It's like the best car ever. It does everything you need perfectly without any issues. Never was exciting to me. It just served its purpose. And now I'm like super stoked about this thing. Like I got an update on my car this week and like, you know, it, it has a dash cam, like all eight cameras on this thing will record everything going on all the time. And you can view the videos in the car whenever you're in park. Like, so I park at the grocery so store, cool. I go in, when I get into the car, it'll say, Hey, sentry mode recorded that something occurred. And then you can just click on that and it'll pop up with what occurred. And it has 10 minutes of recording around the event. And I can see if like the person parked next to me opened their car door and dinged mine. And as they drive off, I have their license plate. You know, it's like, that's wonderful. Or if like somebody decides to deface it, I don't know, or somebody's doing something insane on the highway, it'll record that, you know, if somebody causes an accident. So things like that are crazy. They're actually working right now. There's live video. You can watch it. Um, these cars now, it's a live update for people who have the beta. Basically, I'm not in their beta system. Okay. But there's probably a couple thousand people who are or something who test their beta software. And it'll actually stop at intersections, acknowledge the stoplight or the stop sign and the cars surrounding it. Amazing. And tell you if you should proceed or not, it makes you confirm what it's telling you it will do. So it won't like take the action itself because they don't want to kill you just in case, but like it, it now stops at intersections and proceeds when it should. It's, it's just crazy stuff. These things can do. So I think, you know, it's sort of just a splurge toy, but it's fascinating to me what what they can do. Oh my gosh. Tyler, did you hear that sound? What sound was that? P pretend like you just heard a sound. Oh, yes. <laughs> that was something. Do you know what that sound means, Tyler? What is it? That's right. It means it's time for Are You Smarter Than a 16th Grader? The part of the show where I ask you a question that oh, a senior God. PS with your oh, areas God. of study should be able to answer. <laughs> uh, oh, no. Today's question <laughs> comes from marketing professor Radhika Zaveri. Uh, oh, God. <laughs> she asks, we'll see if uh, I, I don't know. <laughs> here we go. Uh, one important question for brands today is how a brand prepares for crisis scenarios. If you were in charge of a brand or business learning from our rapidly changing environment, what are two to three ways to proactively plan for future crisis? For example, if you were in charge of the Olympics, your what if scenarios would include everything from what if we had the worst heat wave in the summer to global financial crisis to uh, saliently right now an epidemic. Well, Jesus, you just hit me with like what should be a capstone project or something for one of these seniors. Sure did. You got to answer uh, it right now, goodness. Tyler. Uh, and I got to answer it right now. Oh, gosh. So this is uh, this is appropriate, I guess, that you'd ask it to me. I don't really know a whole lot about branding stuff. But what I can say, you know, studying risk management, this is something that generally risk management would have to do or look at. So you, you have a whole team of individuals in a risk management department, and hopefully you isolate all of these various scenarios that you know, air quotes could happen. You should have a magical file cabinet somewhere with exact procedures of what you do. And you pull out a folder that says, hey, pandemic, hey, massive heat wave, hey, recession. And then you just follow the bullet points, which 
I don't know the bullet points, but that's in theory what you should do to prepare for these things. So the, the key is, first off, you need to ensure that as a business entity, you actually have a department who's just going through the process of thinking this stuff out right before it would occur. Cause you, you want to be proactive as opposed to reactive on something like this. And I'm sure we could say right now, it seems this is me maybe making a political statement, but it seems like the federal government has been far more reactive than it has been proactive on what's been happening over the past two months. Um, so first off, Proactivity, if that's a word, proactiveness, maybe, is is key number one. You know, trying to isolate all of the various things that could occur and coming up sort of with just general game plans on how to approach them, I think, would be important. And then, correct me if I'm wrong here, um, this is sort of like, uh, a, is this is the question more brand-centered? Like how, how to create a good image for a brand in a, in a terrible time or something? Uh, brands and businesses brands and businesses. So, you know, and the key with, with branding and something like this is you, you don't want to come across as, you know, you don't want to ruin your brand image when something like this happens either. So the key there is to think how you handle your clientele during this time. So a good example is let's say you go to central market today, or you go to Kroger, they're both handling it very different ways, right? So if you go to central market, the pandemic is being handled with just incredible, it almost seems crazy. They make you stand in a line outside. They only let so many people in the building at a single point in time, um, which makes sense. They are letting people in the building when the number you know drops or whatever. They have you stand six feet apart. They've got the entire thing uh, covered in case it rains. They have hand sanitizing stations everywhere. All of their employees are running around with you know, sanitizing spray and wiping everything down. Like I went this week and saw it happen real time. And, and they've got signs up everywhere about what they're doing. So they're making it very clear how they're handling a crisis situation to their clients, thereby increasing their brand image. And then on top of that, they're also managing their brand image even better by making it very clear how they're caring for their employees during this time. You know, they're providing masks and they're providing additional pay. And there's a great article that was maybe in the Texas Monthly or something about how HEB, which is the parent company that, well, HEB obviously is its own entity, like, you know, grocery store chain, but obviously it's also part of Central Market, how they're handling um, this entire process. And so that's a really interesting dynamic too. And what they've basically done is they've provided, you know, additional pay to their employees. They're not trying to lay people off and they're being really thoughtful about it. And maybe they won't make as much profit over this month, next month and through the summer. But the reality is people love Central Market and HEB now because they've been managing this so well. So I think taking a loss in a crisis is okay as a business if you realize that it'll allow you to really succeed after the business and also if it's the right thing to do. Hopefully that Tyler. answers the question. I just rambled, so. Tyler. Yes, sir. Is that your final answer? I'll, I'll stick with it. Watch, you probably have an answer there and it's like two words. <laughs> that is correct. You, you got it correct. Uh, oh, okay. <laughs> the answer I was given okay. was uh, acceptable answers might range from diversity in thought, diverse teams, uh, which you hit on to represent different situations, oh. uh, scenario planning, which you also hit on, uh, listening for changes in consumer sentiment behavior, predictive analysis. Uh, you hit on that and you added some extra stuff too. Oh, so good job. Thank you, God. you got it correct. Because business, <laughs> business was like, 
90 credit hours or something. So <laughs> I'm glad that of those 90 credit hours or whatever it was, I did learn a thing or two. Okay. You are, you are still smarter than a 16th grader. Uh, Tyler, oh. thank you so much for your time. Uh, how can listeners you. get in touch with you? If they're, if they're thinking along these lines of like wanting to do something different, sure. and wanting, uh, help planning, what's the best way to reach out? Yeah, I am happy to talk with anybody if they want to, uh, ask me questions or just say hi or whatever. I, I don't really, um, sort of actively use Facebook, but I have it and I kind of have it for things like this. So if anybody finds me on Facebook, you know, I'm part of any of the SMU alumni groups and things like that. So I, I'm in there if you want to, or just search Tyler Douglas Anderson and it'll probably pop up. There's a lot of us cause it's a super common white guy name. Um, <laughs> but, uh, but I'm out there. So just friend me on Facebook. You can shoot me a message. I like check it once a week or something and I'll respond there. Or of course you can email me. That's, a much easier way. And I'll respond to that usually daily or something. And, and my email is pretty straightforward. It's my name with periods in between each of the individual names and it's at Gmail. So it's Tyler T Y L E R dot Douglas D O U G L A S dot Anderson A N D E R S O N at gmail.com. And, and you're welcome to email me anytime. Yeah. Great. Awesome. Tyler, thank you so much. And Hey, PS love. Yeah. PS love. Thank you, Christian. <laughs>